This podcast discusses difficult topics that may not be appropriate for all listeners. We are not doctors or therapists. None of our content should be construed as medical advice, nor as a substitute for professional help. Names and other specific identifying details are often changed for the privacy and protection of our guests. Our guests' experiences are shared as they experienced them. Opinions may not reflect the opinions of Beck and Ella or this podcast. There will also be adult language used. Lots of it. Listener discretion strongly advised. Welcome back to Narcissist Gaslighters and Cheaters. Oh my, I am your host, Beck. And I am your other host, Ella. How you doing, Ella? I'm good. How are you, Beck? I'm good, too. I um had like this free weekend because as much as I hate sports ball, Detroit was in the sports ball thing for oh, like, really a long time yes and they've oh, wow. sucked and they've always been my favorite like team <laughs> and so I was a sports ball fan the last few and I also um now cheer for Taylor Swift's team so right that's that's got me into being kind of a sports ball fan so I was excited but then um Detroit <laughs> lost and I quit caring so yeah I had this free, free weekend where I didn't have to get emotionally involved and something dumb like that so that was cool nice what's new with you not a whole lot start a new project nice. that's fun and exciting awesome but other than that i mean nothing new just chilling good deal well we will jump in today we are here with melanie hi melanie hi guys thank you for joining us today thank you for having me on i'm excited who are you going to be talking to us about um i'm going to be talking about my ex um we will name him james today um and uh, he is my narcissist that I encountered in the in the wild. <laughs> narcissist in the wild. I like it. <laughs> Great. Well, how did you? Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself first. Sure. Um, I am in my late thirties. I grew up in uh, Middle Tennessee. Um, most of my family is still here. I had a pretty typical upbringing. I am very fortunate to be among the people whose parents are still happily married, which is fantastic, and have siblings, and had a pretty pretty idyllic childhood, um, which is great. So kind of went through school here and um, started my career here and have been really successful in my field, and I just love this area. Awesome. Nice. Tell us about how you met your narcissist. Like everyone meets anyone these days, I met through a dating app. Um, right. <laughs> I believe Bumble, maybe. I can't quite remember at this point. I've been on many. But I believe I met him on Bumble. And I was trying to think back about like what made him stand out compared to others. And I think it was, I was actually like grocery shopping one day and we were having a conversation through the app. And it was such an engaging conversation that I looked up later and realized I'd been standing in the same aisle for the like the last 20 minutes having a conversation. So I, I kind of got lost in, in time for a minute, which was fun. Yeah, for, that's always the most fun part for me of a new relationship is like that initial getting to know each other when like every message is really exciting that you get back and you're mm -hmm. learning. It's a it's a fun time for sure. Yeah. So how did it progress from there? Well, as you can imagine, very similar to what um, we hear with a lot of narcissists, very charismatic person. So instantly charming, instantly um, a good conversationalist. And there was just a lot of initial attraction. Looking back now, I can see that there were probably warning signs in the first date. Um, but at the time, I you know, brushed them aside and kept on going. So he was late for the first date, which I am generally a forgiving person about. I'm very on time. In fact, I was early. I'm always early. I get so much anxiety if I'm running late for anything, even if it doesn't matter, even if it's something that like I don't even need to be on time for that's like an open house type thing. I want to be there like before it starts or I'm just a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with this. Like I want to scout it out. I want to see yeah. there because again, I'm from this area. So I know people. And so I was, I was very early. He was very late mm -hmm. also you know we were drinking we had drinks together that was our first date was to go have drinks and I could tell he probably pre-gamed the date a little bit and again I chalked that up to nerves and then later you know discovered other other reasons but the conversation flowed really well and I really liked him initially so 
you know, I gave it another shot despite the early warning signs that would later become things that I would, you know, get used to. You're like me. You're like a bouquet of red flags for me. So sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Pass that right on over. <laughs> we can iron those out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the time, I was like late 20s. I owned my own home, um, was living in on my own in Franklin. and Nice. Yeah, started seeing him frequently right off the bat. We were, you know, the first date was great. We had the second date, like, the, the next night or a couple nights later. So he was quick on the follow-up. And for the next six weeks, it was, at, like, almost every night, all the time, we were together. A lot of love bombing, a lot of that, like initial you're amazing and this is so great this feels really natural this feels like we feel so connected and I've never felt so connected with anyone like I do with you and that kind of progressed for a while it wasn't just in that period but there was definitely a lot of like initial fast ramping up and then about six weeks in, when we started to kind of talk about and have conversations about like, hey, what are we doing? But then recognized that he was like, oh, I'm seeing other people. And I was like, when? Because you're with me all the time. Right. And so we had some period where we weren't exclusive. We were seeing other people. Mainly he was seeing other people. And I kind of was like, okay with that because I... I wasn't really sure that that was exactly what I wanted um, or that he was exactly what I wanted. I had some I had some flags come up that I was like, mm, reevaluate this. So I went on a couple dates, but I just found myself kept I kept wanting to come back to him. And I I always did. And so, you know, we kind of progressed along in our relationship. We were kind of sending to see each other frequently, but he was also at times still seeing other people. And I was like, I'm young. That's no big deal. Like, you know, that's fine. I was planning on moving to Nashville and didn't know what that would bring about with my life. And so I kind of just kept going with things. And as we kept going, there was a lot of like triangulation starting to happen between, you know, the other people he was seeing and um, who wanted time when and how, how he was navigating that. So that some conflict arose from that, but I, at the time, kind of took a very, like, blase, just whatever works, works. Like, I'm not trying to pull the rug out from anybody, but I, I would like to see you more. And so, for a long time, he was like, you're, like, you're my comfort. You are the calm in my storm. It's very, this feels very comfortable and natural for me. Um, so, he was doing a lot of reassuring of what he got out of the relationship with me, but not ever reassuring what I needed in the relationship with him. Gotcha. And I definitely did not recognize that at the time. And he had been married before, um, had gone through what I knew was a tough divorce. Then kind of came the trauma dumping. So once I became the person that he was comfortable with and the calm in the storm, I was also the person that got all the information. And so there was a lot of trauma dumping kind of at that stage of our relationship where I got kind of through his lens what he felt like his biggest obstacles were for him to work through and overcome. And looking back now, knowing what I know now, I can see that he was showing vulnerability in a way that he was comfortable with right where he could draw out my need to help and fix without losing me and the chaos that was actually going on in his life it's so hard it is so hard because we're just it's a sweeping generalization but women typically are just so hardwired to help that it's very difficult when someone is asking for help and for us to not, mm -hmm. you know, you just feel very responsible for helping when people see that and they prey on it for sure. But it is very difficult when I have a very hard time saying no, if anyone asks for my help for any reason, like help is a buzzword out to me. <laughs> Absolutely. That's I think for a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I, I am naturally a fixer. I'm a problem solver. Um, I'm a people pleaser by nature and even by profession, my job, I work with people with mental, you know, mental health concerns. So that 
that becomes a big part of who I am and just helping support others and yeah. and helping support work others on things that are difficult for them to navigate. And so I'm like, here I am, you're like savior here. I can partner with you and really help you overcome the things that you're telling me you've already identified, but just need the support and working through it. And I'm like, oh, I've got that. Like I can, I can help you. And the problems just kept growing. So about a year in, he moved in with me. His other relationships ended. We had been seeing each other for a couple months. Um, without anyone else kind of in the works from at least from my perspective and what I know, um, who knows what the actual truth is, but right. So he moved in with me again. I, I owned my house. Um, so he moved in and things were good for a little while. Um, I would say, you know, there were, there were still some concerns here and there. There was a couple of times where something would come up and, I would express that I wasn't getting what I needed from him and he would kind of turn it back around on me um, and tell me what I was not doing and how I could do better to get him to want to do better. Isn't that funny how they can make their their own shit yours your fault and responsibility? Mm -hmm. Like maybe if you could just help me help you. Yes. <laughs> No. <laughs> Every time it was always just what you can do to fix this, what you can do to solve this problem. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, there started to be a lot of like controlling behaviors. There was some paranoia mixed in. So even in my house, you know, if dishes were left in the sink, it was a huge issue. It wasn't just a, hey, this is bothering me. It was like an all out, like I'm going to get yelled at, you know, for leaving dishes in the sink or... For having the curtains open on a window when he wanted all the curtains shut all the time. Um, nobody can look in. And I like natural light. Me too. So that was a big way that that kind of shifted for me. And I adapted to that because I was like, I can fix this. This will solve the problem. I'll just leave the curtain shut. You know, I can deal with that. And I found myself doing that a lot. Like changing my own behavior in hopes that it would change his meanwhile he's not changing any of his behavior to suit your needs no not never right. um in this time i you know again i had a successful career i was working a good job i had decent money and savings built up and good credit score all these things were kind of moving in a good direction but he was not working and i didn't know how long that had been going on i do now but throughout our entire four and a half, almost five year relationship, he never had a job aside from driving occasionally for Uber. Mm. And that was inconsistent. And I later learned during some of those times when he was quote unquote working, he was cheating. So that was always something that was kind of prevalent throughout our relationship is that, and I still to this day don't know how many times who, you know, how many people sure. that happened throughout um, at different times. And sometimes I did know and find out and I'm a forgiving person by nature. So I continued to try to work through those and try to overcome that and lots of boundaries being broken. Um, so just kind of a disregard for that. And then as I would bring up those concerns and be upset about the cheating or some of the controlling behaviors or the amount of money that was getting spent on him and lifestyle things and uh, vacations and all this stuff while none was coming in really from his side. What was his reasoning for that? For not working? Yeah. A lot of different reasons. Some of it was that he, he has children from a previous relationship uh, from his prior marriage which played a really big part in kind of why it took so long to end this relationship on my end. But his schedule, his custody schedule at the time, he would often say he couldn't hold a regular job because of his custody schedule. Not accurate, but 
was a reason um, that was given for that. <laughs> also, one of the things that came out in the trauma dumping, and and this is likely true, is he has pretty significant ADHD. And I think that impacted a lot of his ability to work through things, um, work under other people, take direction from other people, feedback from other people, not a strong suit, not necessarily related to the ADHD, but can be and and just follow through getting to a place on time being committed to something every day was not something that he was ever really suited for interested in so he would often try to start his own companies and come up with his own plan for employment but never followed through on any of them gotcha so the duration of our relationship he had you know, at least 15 different ideas of what he was going to do to make money and never, never followed through with a one. Got it. Mm-hmm. And some of his ideas were really solid, really great. I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. He has a lot of resources. He's somebody who grew up in a very privileged family um, and definitely could, should have been someone who had the resources and the connections to be able to make things happen. And even with, you know, my family support and, you know, other things, it there was a lot of opportunities that got thrown his way that just fell to the wayside and through just him not activating to get it done. Okay. So that was a big point of contention at different times because um, not only was he not working, but then wasn't really picking up the slack at home either. So I was working a full-time job and job in management that made me oversee people. It was kind of, it's a big job. And, you know, despite that, I was still doing a lot of the cleaning, a lot of the childcare when the children were with me um, or with us, a lot of the cooking, a lot of the, you know, all the grocery shopping, all of the just day-to-day things. Um, and the mental load. Mm-hmm. The more I really understand and learn about the differences in men and women's mental load and have like language to explain those things, the more pissed off I get. Yes. <laughs> like just in general and just see it in every like woman who has a male partner have like the same piece a bit. Like we're just so conditioned to... I always call it, there's like a hamster wheel spinning in my head that has sticky notes all over it. <laughs> and you can never even just hand over a sticky note because there's reminding and there's like, you have to make the appointment and then remember that it's six month checkup. Like all of those things, you can't like just hand it over because there will be like a ball dropped and you're so afraid to drop one of the sticky notes. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to explain that like to people who aren't conditioned men primarily, I'm sure it goes both ways, but again, a sweeping generalization because they're just not conditioned that way. And often if you can explain it and they see it, they can get it, but it's not like a natural society has not taught them to think that way or to understand mental load at all. I agree. I actually call it bees buzzing in my head. I keep bees buzzing in my head all the time, but I pull each one out individually and I'm like, oh, this is that thing I have to do. And and yeah, it's a good analogy. I I carried all of his mental load for him. I was the one with those scheduling events, scheduling um, doctor's appointments, focusing on, mm-hmm. you know, when we had the kids, what we were going to do with them, planning all of those things, planning every vacation we took, you know, down to... I had to put things on his calendar. I couldn't tell him and ask them, ask him to put it on his own calendar. I had to be the one actually put it on right and then I had to map it out from there so if we were going to go to an event and I wanted us to be at the event at a certain time because time is important for me and being on time is important then I would have to map that out for him so that I set up when he should be in the shower when he should be dressed when we need to be leaving and then mm-hmm. oh my god and then even with those best laid plans never on time not a single time and then it's like a lot of people will then say like why don't we have enough sex exactly. I don't care. because 
I'm your mother and right now and I am not sexually attracted to people I have to parent. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somehow we kept that alive pretty well for a while, but that was also something that was, you know, hard is that he was somebody who had identified as that being a really high need for him, high drive. And so those things were expected and it was expected morning and evening, no matter what state I was in, how tired I was from carrying the load, working full time, you know, taking care of children or him, it was expected. And if it didn't happen, then there was the reaction of him after that for it not happening. So that was just, a, you know, again, another layer of like, it's already hard when you're doing everything for everyone to want to be there. Right. Me overcoming it to get there when I can, but if it if I'm tired or I'm sick, it's immediate resentment. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that that was something that operated, you know, we operated on for in for a while, that kind of state where it was like criticism and some of those smaller things in action and the work stuff. I'd say when things really took a larger turn was COVID. Um, And that I think extended some things for a while because during COVID we were super reliant on each other. Um, We took it very seriously we locked down pretty hard and so that really created a different type of bond in terms of being kind of sequestered together for a long time and kind of moving through that we were dependent on each other and that increased our dependency tenfold so definitely that codependency really set in strong during that time yeah and also while it was an issue before Um, alcoholism really came into play during that time and ramped up in a really significant way. Mm -hmm. And that ended up becoming, you know, despite all of those narcissistic traits that I was already seeing, didn't necessarily recognize them as that at that time, but knew that they were problems that we had. That all took a backseat to focus on alcohol because that became an identifiable problem that I thought, okay, we can solve this. Right. And it exacerbated all of those other, other problems that we had. It just took them tenfold. And so that kind of became the focus, a difficult one because addiction is very real. Mm -hmm. It takes a long time for people to recognize that they are addicted often. Mm -hmm. And During COVID, you don't have any way to hide it, really, because we're here all the time together. It's not social anymore. It's, you know, you're drinking the Everclear from the spray bottle that we are using to clean our um, groceries with and those kinds of things. Mm. That escalated pretty pretty quickly. So then we started dealing with issues of just like incapacitated, you know, sleeping during the day, up all night. So insomnia became a big issue, which didn't work for my schedule. And definitely, you know, wasn't sometimes he would stay up all night on his own. He'd be on his computer doing something else. But a lot of times he'd wake me up, want me to be up and entertaining or hanging out with him. And then that became difficult. It's so rude. <laughs> I'm already doing all of this other stuff and you're going to wake me from my slumber to entertain you. Yeah. No. I lose it. Yeah. I'm not a nice waker upper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Me either. laughs> At all. It, it was never fun. It was more often just staying up late and then me going to bed late. But I mean, I would definitely wake up to incredibly loud music playing in the house and, you know, at different times. So disrespectful. Yeah. So you can imagine that that created a perfect storm of nobody's emotions being regulated. Um, There's nobody sleeping. You got one person drinking excessively and a me that's like literally going insane um, day by day. Mm -hmm. Sleep deprived. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And still trying to maintain a career, still trying to, you know, help take care of children. It really did create just a really toxic environment to be in. And, you know, I continued to have hope that we could make it better. And there would be periods of time after things happened. So on especially terrible nights, if we had been fighting and he turned to drinking after a fight, then aggression would occur. You know, it was not consistently every time, but it was enough times that it was too many times. And it's really, 
something that I never expected to ever have happen once, but more than that to have happen again and again um, and to still be somebody who stayed. So there's a lot of like shame wrapped up in that. There's a lot of but it's not your shame. No, it's not yours at all. No, but it was. I know it's one thing to say that and another thing to feel it, but still, <laughs> it is not at all. And to admit it to others. So I started kind of self-isolating a little bit because I am a very, like, authentic, open person. I I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm very honest with people, and I couldn't be. Right. And so I, I started self-isolating from my friends a lot. I still was pretty connected with my family at that time. But then that started to, to deteriorate. How far into your relationship was COVID? A year and a half, almost two years. Okay. When COVID started. Yeah, we were about in the midpoint of our relationship or close to it when that started. Okay. Um, so we were pretty, like I said, we were cohabitating. We were pretty locked in, had big plans for this to be a great relationship and for this to be, a, you know, the one kind of, you know, that we were going to do life together. We talked at one point before this kind of started, we had talked about like future children. That was something that I had talked about. And so all of those plans were in place, but then just slowly kind of started crumbling uh, one summer, we went on vacation with my family, and uh, it was disastrous. And I think that was kind of one of the final moments of recognizing that this is not going to work long term. But I was still really connected with his children and really had a hard time feeling like I could abandon them um, at that time. And so we went on this vacation with my family and he was drunk for the majority of it. There's nothing worse than your family witnessing your partner. Oh, my gosh. Being toxic in any way. There's just, like, nothing worse, in my opinion. It's the most horrible feeling. And my family is, like, so understanding and, like, so generous. They invited us on this trip with them. It was a big group of us. Kids came. It was, It was a really you know, it was supposed to be a really great time. We had done this the year before and it had gone really well. So I was like, we, we've got this, we can do this. And, you know, we had been coming out of COVID at that point. It was kind of that next summer. And so we thought, let's, let's celebrate, let's go on this trip. And it was incredibly embarrassing. It ended in um, me actually breaking up with him because I was just like, this This can't go on. You are drinking to excess. It's obvious. You know, my whole family is really upset. You know, the beach trip was ruined and everybody could tell that this was not okay, that you were not okay. And I was like, I, I can't keep doing this. Um, so I actually ended it then thinking, okay, maybe this is, you know, maybe this is my time to just step away. But I guess I wasn't quite fully ready. So it was about two weeks right. of being done at that time. I mean, he was living with me, so he was still around some. And I took, a, you know, a couple breaks, went and stayed with family. And really, I started therapy. I was really trying to figure out, you know, what I could do and what I needed to do for me. And got a lot of really great advice from people. But he came back and he was like, I'm going to quit drinking. Um, you are the person that I like love and adore and I know that I've you know everything that you want to hear in that moment he said mm -hmm. he said it was all his fault that he you know feels terrible for how he's treated me and the fact that he's hurt me and and all of those things and I, I believed him and I was like okay well here are my stipulations I need us to go to therapy individually and together. I need drinking to be no longer a factor. So I need you to quit drinking. And I laid it out. I was like, if we're going to do this, this is what I need. But at that time, I was going to therapy and we had done some couples therapy. And the couples therapist quickly identified that they wanted to work with me individually and no longer with us as a couple before I had decided that and kind of took me to the side and and really kind of read me the riot act of like, you need to know what you're in for. This this is what you have gotten yourself into. And I can't tell if you're ready to make this decision in full yet, but I want you to know that I'm here for you and I'll hang in with you with this if you'll let me. Super fun when a therapist pulls you aside and... <laughs> 
It's happening to me too. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I know it has to be too. My first husband was like 20 years older than me. We were in therapy and she like told him and this one, like you really need grief therapy and you, you need to do these other individual things. And I don't think it's the right time for you guys to be doing like couples therapy. And then she kept me back in and she's like, and you are 25 years old. What are you doing? I love that. <laughs> he needs to fix his own shit. Yeah. <laughs> It was a little less aggressive than that, but she's like, this is a years and years and years long process for him. Like he did not get this way overnight. He is not <laughs> going to unfuck himself overnight. And you are 25 years old. Like, please go find a better life for yourself. Yeah. And then right. that. Yeah. Mine was, uh, we were in therapy together and in the middle of the session, she's like, I'm going to need to talk to each of you alone. Nope. <laughs> And I went first and she leans in and she goes, it's never going to be about you. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and that was our last ditch effort to try to save the marriage, which I already knew it was kind of over at that point anyway. And it was just so validating. And I just took a deep breath and I was like, right. it's, validating. it's over. I'm telling her I'm leaving her after this. <laughs> Yeah, you know it's not good when they ask to see you separately. <laughs> no, yeah, and that, I mean that's exactly how it was. We were in it together, and they were like, "I'm keeping you." Like, yeah, I can't keep working with both of you and yep. him, but you're coming with me, <laughs> right? And I wish I had honored that and lived in that in full in that moment. But alas, I learned lessons the hard way. <laughs> Same. So I continued trying, but. At that point, I knew what I was dealing with. And so I think that affected my outlook on what trying actually looked like. So I think kind of once my therapist broke down the wall of like, this is who you're actually dealing with, I could never really see him the same. Mm -hmm. And what previously felt like sadness turned to anger at his inability to recognize what he was doing. Because I had a very frank conversation with them, and they always tell you never to call a narcissist a narcissist. Like, don't tell them. Mm -hmm. Right? That's the first thing I did. Tell, told them. Let us see the man behind the curtain. I know. I did. <laughs> um, I just laid it out there and was like, I think this is what this is. Um, and I'm not saying that means I'm not here, but I'm just saying like there are things that we've got to address. And so, like everything else, it started off okay for a little while. We had a couple months where. You know, he was making an attempt, picking up some slack around the house. You know, he went to therapy a couple times. Just enough. Like, yep. Just enough to keep you a little bit on the, on the hook. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I definitely, I think my reactions changed into more of an anger. And I think some of that hope started dwindling and that just made me even more frustrated. And then nothing set him off more than me being angry you know if I was sad he could muster up a fake empathy or you know kind of get something to make me feel a little bit better but when I was angry he was rageful and that continued some of that escalatory behavior and so if I went up he went up higher everything was my fault at that point everything was about how I reacted to all the terrible things he was doing like cheating and stealing money and controlling and manipulating me man no one no one gets madder than a narcissist accused of something they absolutely did <laughs> yeah exactly right <laughs> like pulling them on things that they unequivocally absolutely did and they go through the roof yeah mm -hmm. and that i mean truly that whole accountability piece is one of the biggest for him you know he just it's always everyone else's fault. You know, first wife ruined his life. And um, the two people that he dated before me were crazy and um, or dated kind of simultaneously to me in the beginning um, were crazy. And, you know, I then became crazy and I'm out to get him. And right. Pro tip, if everyone around you is crazy, <laughs> it might be you. That indication. Maybe it's not everyone around you. Yep. Um, I don't know how they keep that delusion going for so long. I mean, even still living, you know, I know just from anecdotal things, still very much living that delusional life of 
everyone else's fault but mine. The world's out to get me and I'm the only one who knows what's right from wrong. And it, it amazes me, honestly, at this point, yeah. being, being removed from it, it's actually fascinating to me. I'm like, your brain is so weird and interesting and I don't want anything to do with it. But wow, is that fun to think about that like... <laughs> What you know <laughs> that your brain built these like walls to protect you, <laughs> right? Yeah, it really is fascinating. So, yeah i I had always hoped for kind of like a soft ending to things. Like maybe I could just see my way out. So, the last six months of our relationship, I think I probably broke up with him on a daily basis. Um, like it really felt like I was always just like, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. Yeah, this fight sucks. I think I'm done. Um, did he have anywhere to go? Yes and no. He did have a, a place where he could live, but not comfortably. Sure. And not not really a place where he could take children. So that was also a hard part as I definitely felt like I was not just putting him out, but I was putting children out, even though he only had them. And that's tough. Part time. It was really tough. And like I said, I was, you know, I was very close with his children still um, and very close with his children. And um, that was a big part of it for me. So it, it did not come easily, but I knew it was ending. I knew there was no hope for salvaging. At a certain point, I just said kind of like, this is, you know, this is done after this next week, I need you to leave. And he was like, no, I'm not going to. This is my house too. I live here. Um, so I'm not going to leave. You can evict me. It's not your house too. It is not. <laughs> I think you've done nothing to make this materialize out of thin air, but mm-hmm. show up. This is not your house too. Yeah, but fully locked into you will have to evict me wow and can you imagine if someone wanted to kick me out of their house whether we're in a romantic relationship or we're roommates or whatever i'm so embarrassed at that point that you will never see me again like i will be gone Uh within the hour (laughs) and like that will be it and i like never want to ever look at you ever because i'm like just so i can't believe i am getting like somebody wants to evict me from their life yes literally i'm like okay bye deuces uh-huh yeah. Yeah. like it's so weird that you would just dig in and be like no i'm gonna stay where i'm not wanted and just do this as long as i can exactly yeah and he didn't really want to be with me either like he didn't want to be there and towards the end he wasn't even really staying here that often he would leave and go and stay other places but no the lifestyle to which he had become accustomed mm-hmm. yep <laughs> And didn't want to leave it. I mean, I wouldn't either. It's a good gig if you can get it. <laughs> I I definitely handed him the sweet life for a long time. <laughs> um, whether he acknowledges it ever, he won't. Right. Um, but it definitely was. Yeah. I mean, again, no, not a job that he had to work. I was paying for everything. Now we were stressed all the time. So it wasn't always roses, but it definitely was low effort on his part. Um, Low effort required. Drinking was still, you know, he had started drinking again at, at multiple different times, tried to quit again, started drinking again. And where it finally came to a conclusion um, was a night of drinking in which he was aggressive and putting other people in danger in a couple ways, you know, really wanting to drive and very, very intoxicated, like three pints of vodka in intoxicated um, across a like six hour period. And I called the cops. Good for you. And I... I just, it was kind of the last straw for me. I had been teetering on this edge forever and I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Um, so I called the cops and again, he uh, tried to, what what he always did, because I would call the cops on occasion when necessary. He would then try to counter call the cops against me. So I called the cops on him. They came out. Then he tried to make a claim that, um, you know, I was being aggressive towards him. Mm-hmm. And really that wasn't a route I wanted to go down, but I knew I had to end it. And I knew I had to get him out of my house, that I was no longer safe, that the the curtain had really come down he knew how I felt that I was done and that if he stayed in my life and in my house that vicious cycle that it was coming to a boil would just keep going and it that really came to a boil across a couple weeks but that night was just the final straw 
So I called the cops and then I went to the family safety center and I actually called me while I was sitting in the family safety center with the interviewer at the family safety center. And I told the interviewer, I had just walked into the room. I had just introduced myself, had not gotten into anything yet in terms of talking about why I was there. And I said, oh my gosh, he's calling. And this person didn't even know like who this he was or that I was there for him. And he was like, if you need to answer that, you can. And he was like, if that's the person you're coming about, you can answer that on speaker if you need to. And I did. And so then I just sat there with the phone out on speaker being unloaded on in a diatribe with no breaths for like 20 minutes straight until the guy said, just hang up. And I hung up and he was like, so you came about a narcissist, huh? Yeah. (laughs) And then you feel so seen. No, so seen. I immediately just laughed and I was like, I don't, I haven't even said anything. And he was like, sweetie, my dad's a narcissist. I hear it all the time. I know what that sounds like. Yeah. It's funny. If you give them enough rope, they hang themselves. Yeah. Just like set you up so perfectly to like be validated in the right moment and get the right help from the right people yep so i i got a restraining order um it was granted that night good yes that's awesome because often it's hard to do Mm -hmm. yeah i was very lucky like i said i had the person there that listened to it listened to how he was talking to me and was like yep this girl's in danger so that was helpful he delivered proof on a silver platter. Truly. Here you go. I know. I couldn't have asked for better. It's like, oh, epic timing. Right. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for doing me that nervous. So with the restraining order, obviously he was not allowed to come back to my home. So for the first time in a long time, I felt safe being at home. It was very loaded for me. Yeah. And so I was a complete mess, but I was safe. And that that felt good. And I knew, I knew that there was no taking it back. Once I had done that, I called the cops, I got a restraining order. There was no taking that back. Right. And so I just walked that path. And even with the restraining order in place, going through court, all of that, even after that, it took over three months for him to finally get all of his things out of my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Little ties, we can just leave these little ties mm. and sprinkle them in so you're never completely severed. Yeah. Just be in control. So annoying. Yep. And then there was some issue with like the children involvement and him wanting to be involved in my involvement with the kids. And I was too scared to not allow that because I was terrified that I would miss out on that. So it took a little while. It was probably another, it was a solid six months after I made that phone call to where I completely went no contact and I have been no contact for over a year now nice nice good for you thank you it's definitely a better feeling yeah did you have to evict him like did you have to go through that process or the restraining order the restraining order did it because when we went back to court to finalize all of those pieces um that was part of the agreement that we entered into is that he could no longer reside at my house nice good there was a timeline for him to get all of his things out of the house but that that did not get kept up and the follow-up for that really was difficult to navigate and ended up just costing a lot of money through lawyers that um didn't make sense so it it took a really long time um but it eventually happened especially didn't since he didn't have his personal assistant to keep him on track with the time frames correct <laughs> the responsibilities now that would come then you pack up their shit and put it out on the curb yep that's what i had to do with my ex right you had to put it on the curb she she just would would come in and grab a few things and leave, come in, grab a few things and leave. And I was like, I'm done with this bullshit. I put it out in the hallway. We live in the same apartment complex. She moved like two door or two floors up. Rifted it. And and I was like, no, I'm done. Went to Home Depot, got one of those things, like the jam the door. Oh yeah. So she couldn't come in because I couldn't change a lock. She was on the lease. They wouldn't let me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a whole thing. And I was like, I'm done. I put all of her shit out and locked the door. <sighs> I was like, I'm not dealing with this. Yep. <laughs> what wrong? I know it's like trying to rationalize with irrational 
behavior. But like, Mm -hmm. I just, the lack of self-respect even, you'd think somebody who thinks so highly of themselves like would have a little bit of self-respect to not be that person. But it's like they don't. They don't. If they can continue to injure and annoy and control, like they will continue to do that regardless of how ridiculous it makes them look. Yeah. Well, and and what was even funnier about it is, and funny now, um, is that he already had his next supply lined up. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. That was already secured, you know, before I left, before I ended it, that was already in the works and secured. And so he literally jumped from one relationship to the next person. And I'm like, you're in this relationship with this other person, but all of your belongings are still in my home. And this is going on for three months. Like, where does this person think you live? Where does they, where do they think all your belongings are? Right. But I think, you know, he is the king of smoke and mirrors. He's really good at putting on a good image. And he has some enablers in his life that enable really strongly and stepped in and kept him in the lifestyle that he needed to remain in to, you know, keep going. So he, I don't think he ever fully felt the brunt of consequence at all. Yeah. Uh, no, he's never had to. Somebody's going to float him. Somebody's going to save him. So Did he move in then with the next relationship not immediately a few months later there was some cohabitating happening because that person also was in transition from a previous relationship i believe but certainly within very little time they were they were cohabitating as well gotcha we've often talked on this podcast about the term hobosexual yeah (laughs) they literally like have no place of their own and jump from like relationship to relationship for their like housing yeah i would (laughs) accurately describe him that way yeah (laughs) it's so funny to me like i would be a nervous wreck not having my own yeah shit you know like my own net my own like place that couldn't be like yep just pulled out from under me i don't know how people live in that kind of anxiety truly well i am so glad that you got out how are you doing now really well now um, you know there's still moments where things will hit me um i still get triggered from things from time to time it actually happened this week i was super stressed out with work this week and feeling very like anxious and kind of up a little hyper vigilant and i um, I'm also dating someone new. Oh, good. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, in a great relationship now. Um, very, very happy and very soft relationship, which is great. But I, I recognize that I, when I used to be in that state, um, he, like James, hated me, hated me in that state. It was all, always a point of, you know, contention for him. And I recognized that I was getting in that state and I like preemptively prepped my, my boyfriend to be like, Hey, I am feeling super overwhelmed and anxious. And, you know, he obviously responded really well and was like, what can I do to support you? I can come over and help you with some of the things around the house so that you can focus on what you need to. And that's awesome. Complete opposite of what it would have been before. Yeah. But I could tell that I was still a little triggered about knowing that like, I'm not great in this state. And that's still the voice in my head that pops up from time to time that I have to keep reminding me is not my voice. It's James's and I can push that back. Mm -hmm. For sure. I um, remember after my first marriage, he was hypercritical of everything. And I would, because of he would be critical, I would panic and make a choice that I wouldn't normally make. You know, for example, I remember boiling water on the stove and it started to boil over and he was standing behind me. And every other time that's happened, I've just blown on it, you know, to like... And, but he was standing behind me and I started to panic like he's gonna that's gonna be the wrong thing to do he's gonna tell me that's a stupid thing and I'm like and so I'd get all anxious and then I just picked it up and of course it spilled all over and he's like why don't you just blow on it and it's just like Jesus <laughs> you know but like you find yourself making decisions you that's a simple one but it's like oh it does to your brain it's like mm-hmm you second guess yourself every time. Yes, it's such a reaction. And I was that way for a long time afterwards with just little things of like getting this anxiety over being judged or like how I was doing something wrong. And it took a, it takes a long time. It does in a lot of therapy. Fuck these people. <laughs> a lot of therapy. Yeah. Yes. 
hundred percent. I'm glad you're in such a better place and in such a better relationship. Thank you. Me too. I'm sure that people listening are rooting for that and very happy for it. It's hard. I think the next the next relationship too is like you're you're conscious of not dragging in, you know, like your crap, but you also have to be aware enough to be able to talk about it and explain it and it's a whole lot it is a whole lot i am yeah. i'm very very lucky that i found somebody who's willing to take on that whole lot because i was not really expecting or looking for anything serious at the time and i you know i i was still doing a lot of healing there were still times that it was really affecting me you know it just I just happened to find somebody who was willing to hang on for that, you know, for that initial piece. And and it was later, it was quite a bit later. So I had done a lot of that, but I'm still on my healing journey. I'm at, you know, over a year contact free and I'm still having to unlearn some of the things that got put in place in that relationship and still having to work yeah. through some of the things that trigger me and remind me of that. And so it alters who you are. I mean, and ways definitely you know you're not the same as you were prior to that experience oh and so yeah it's it's a lot and but that person whoever your new partner is is very lucky to have someone that is so understanding and dedicated and will listen and work through things that's huge so they are the lucky one there for sure Thank you. It has made me incredibly self-aware in a lot of ways. So I think that, you know, there are some, you got to find those silver linings everywhere and wherever you can. Definitely. For sure. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We appreciate it so very much. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. It was great. Thank you, Mel. I love that you guys have this platform for people because I think it's just so needed. And sometimes people don't know what they're in until they're in it and listening to other people's stories. Yeah. Yeah. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Right. And like, that's, I think, our our whole goal of doing this podcast is to like, someone will hear something that just clicks. Resonates, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they can't unsee it. And it starts a chain of events that helps them either get out of a situation or avoid a situation. And it's like, that's why we I love it. do this. So thank you so much for assisting us with that. Yes, thank you. Thank you, you guys, too. Thank you again. All right, have a good night. Yes. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it so much. If you want to support our show further, you can share our podcast with your friends, follow us on our socials at MGCOMPod, or sign up for our Patreon to help keep the show going with a donation. Or you can become a patron for exclusive access to bonus content and interact with us and other loyal listeners on our feed. Meanwhile, if you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. If you didn't, no worries. Move on about your day. If you want to share your story on our show, please visit our website at ngcompod.com to fill out the contact us form. Thanks again for listening.